Welcome to I'm So Obsessed, where we talk with actors, artists, and creators about their work, career, and current obsession. I'm your host, Patrick Holland, and today's guest is the actor John Gallagher Jr., who you might know most recently from having played Liam Dempsey Jr. in season three of Westworld, as well as his roles in the show Newsroom and the film 10 Cloverfield Lane. John stars with Gillian Jacobs in the new horror film Come Play, which is out just in time for Halloween. We discuss the film, Westworld, and John's roles in the Broadway musicals Spring Awakening and American Idiot, which is based off the album by Green Day. Well, let's just jump right into Come Play. I literally just watched it uh, before we hopped uh, online. I wonder, how would you describe the film and who you play? Yeah, so Come Play is a, a is a new uh, horror film, but I feel like you know horror is is slightly selling it short because it's about um, there's a lot of themes that get touched on in it. But it's basically a film about a, a family, uh, a normal kind of blue collar family, kind of struggling to make ends meet and connect. The family's coming apart. I, I play the the father Marty. And Gillian Jacobs plays my my wife, Sarah. We're having some marital trouble, so we're in the process of splitting up, and we're also trying to take care of our eight-year-old son, Oliver, played by Edgy Robertson, who uh, is on the spectrum, and so finds himself struggling to make friends and connect at school. And um, just when things couldn't get tougher for the family, the son, Oliver, finds himself uh, communing with um, this kind of otherworldly presence on his smartphone that uh, may or may not be a kind of vehement spirit that wants to crawl out of his phone and, uh, and, and kidnap <laughs> him. Um, so it starts almost as, 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 <laughs> as great genre films often do. It starts almost as a family drama before descending into something a little, a little spookier. <laughs> I, I think I, that might be maybe the best movie description we've had on this podcast so far. <laughs> it's a good one, yeah. It's it's organic and singular, yeah. It's organic and singular. I would say it's very creepy. It's also wonderful and heartbreaking all at the same time. And I love the use of how the phones and tablets allow Oliver to peer into a scary thing, so to speak. What was your reaction when you first got the script? When I first read the script, it was about two years ago, and my agent sent me a feature film that at the time was going to be called Larry, because it was based on this short film, Larry, that Jacob Chase, our writer-director, had made, which was kind of a proof-of-concept short um, for what turned out to be the feature film. And um, I was just so excited by uh, Jacob's writing. You know, I, I thought it was really unique and really interesting. And he seemed like a really fresh voice in the horror world. And it can be very hard to set uh, a scary movie in modern times because we are so connected and we have, you know, so much technology at our fingertips and so many easy ways to connect. But I thought rather than kind of shy away from that, he really leaned into a way to make that a feature within the film and to play around with those themes of loneliness and alienation and reaching out for friendship and connection over the via the internet only to have it kind of blow up in your face. I thought it was a, a kind of prescient and interesting way to, to frame the story. And I just thought that it was uh, really exciting that Jacob was going to be filming this movie using more practical special effects, kind of like they used to in the old days, uh, not relying too heavy on CGI, 
uh, and post-production animation. When I found out that they were going to be making a puppet for the main creature in the film, uh, that that really sold me on it. Um, <laughs> I, I love that that I love the '80s and I love the Amblin movies of my youth. And the fact that this movie was going to be produced in part by Amblin Entertainment was was super exciting to me. And and then I found out that my castmates were going to be Edgy Robertson and Gillian Jacobs and. Um, I wasn't familiar with Edgy's work because he's a he's a kind of a, a, a young actor, a, a newcomer who's really amazing, and he's I really think he's going to be a superstar in in no time. But I knew Gillian's work and was really excited to get a chance to work with her. So it, all the factors and kind of stars kept aligning, and the, the deal kept getting sweeter until I had no choice but to sign on and take the role. Well, there's a lot to unpack there, uh, but earlier you said kind of uh, describing as a horror movie almost sells it short, and I, I think it does fit in so well with uh, this modern trend of horror films that we see coming out in the last like five or six years. That's as much about family and a modern family as it is about a horror film, and I'm wondering, how did you guys find that balance within the film and in the script? Yeah, you know, I mean, there there was a real sweetness and uh, a, a kind of youthfulness to the to the writing. I, I love a good kind of slasher flick. The as much as the next horror fan, this is almost more old fashioned. Like this is kind of a uh, almost a family horror film. It's 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 not rated R. It's not blood guts and gore. Um, and it is about a young boy, a kind of coming of age and trying to fit in and and find his voice. And um, I just loved that it that it had that that kind of slower pace. It was a little more old fashioned. It wasn't kind of totally a bunch of jump scares, and it wasn't kind of throwing the 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 film in your in your face. It had a lot of heart to it, which ultimately I think is the best way to approach a horror movie. Uh, you know, my favorite horror movies are the ones that do have a lot of heart and are about families and are about real people, real characters. Um, the realer I think it feels, the more effective the scariness is. Well, John, I got to ask you then, what are some of your uh, horror movies that you're a big fan of or that uh, you, you you referenced Amblin earlier? What are your, some of your favorite Amblin ones? Oh, too? yeah. Well, I mean, I remember seeing Poltergeist when I was a kid <laughs> and it just, I mean, I was terrified. It, it absolutely did such a number on me. Um, but I think of that one as that, that kind of being the quintessential kind of Amblin horror movie uh, of the 80s, the fact that you had Steven Spielberg and Toby Hooper and this incredible mm -hmm. ensemble cast and these amazing special effects. And it also was a film that, you know, uh, dealt with technology, with this this ghost somehow being kind of inside the television that that kind of kidnaps this young girl from her family. You know, that's we're almost Jacob's almost kind of playing with that motif a little bit here by having it be the young boy. But instead of the TV, it's the smartphone tablets, you know, so um, that feels like a, a kindred spirit uh, for for our movie. You know, I, when when people ask me about Come Play when I was filming it, I, I kind of said it's it's kind of in a way like a like a modern day kind of riff on, on on poltergeist in some ways except we don't have what's creep my brother and i we were little kids when we saw poltergeist as well was the, the lady who was brought in i just remember the tennis balls was like go into the light bob you know oh like yeah that yeah that absolutely zelda ass. rubenstein playing zelda, the, yeah uh, who's yeah. an amazing actor amazing oh, actor. she's so amazing in that role it was iconic you know that's the thing that uh, you know i feel like people remember from that movie is uh is her going to the light, Carol Ann? Yeah, or also like the the tennis balls. That's such oh, an yeah. iconic. I love that sequence of, of them th realizing that what you throw into the closet comes out of the portal <laughs> and the ceiling. You know, I mean, that's a great sequence. Uh, um, but also, the, I'd say there's uh, having literally just watched it. There's also little echoes of the film The Omen, which I think 
bodes well, especially I think it's just the way um, the character of Oliver is a little bit. Yeah, you're just definitely. not sure what's going on. But I want to ask you this. In the in the film, you play – your character works as a parking lot attendant, mm-hmm. which I have to say for years I have an actor friend of mine named Drew who supported his entire theater career working as a parking lot attendant. No way. Uh, but I'm wondering what are uh, – you must have had some odd jobs as an actor. What are some of the odd jobs you've had? Um, if not being a parking lot attendant, <laughs> I, no, I haven't done the parking lot attendant thing, but I think I might actually get uh, trying it on for size on set. I actually was like, I could dig this, you know, I'd bring a good book and, you know, dial mm-hmm. up my favorite podcast and just wait for the cars to roll in in the middle of the night. You know, I'm all, I've always been a bit of a night owl. So graveyard shift, you know, that, that, that's slightly appealing to me. The thing I think of is that I remember when I was, um, I was about, you know, 20 years old and I had been, only been living in New York city for a couple of years and trying to make it as an actor. And, uh, and, and I took a few gigs as a kind of doing the cater waiter thing at a, <laughs> at a, at a Montessori school in Brooklyn. Uh, it was like a friend of a friend had the hookup and they were like, Oh, it's really easy. You know, they'll, they'll, you'll make some money and you can drink all the free, as much free wine as you can swallow. And, and, uh, and so I remember giving it a try and I tried to do the bartending part of it. And immediately like the first task I had was to open up a bottle of seltzer for a, you know, like a PTA dad that was coming in for the event. And, uh, I, I dropped the bottle and it got shaken up and then I opened it and I sprayed <laughs> seltzer all over the guy. So then they very quickly took me off of that. And they were like, you go just do behind the scenes stuff, like go, you know, pass out some hors d'oeuvres. Uh, and then I couldn't do that either. So very quickly they were realized that the best luck they were going to have with me was to just have me go like looking for basically bussing plates for cleaning up the empty <laughs> plates and bringing them back. And, you know, long story short, I did end up drinking about as much free uh, Chardonnay as I could being as I was about 20 years old, I think at the time and not making any money. And I just remember the night ending up with the entire staff of cater waiters getting wasted and ending up at a karaoke bar on the Upper East Side. <laughs> Well, and then uh, going back to come play, what was production like specifically? Uh, it seems very intimate with the number of characters that are in the film, but also there's a lot of children in the film, children actors or yeah. child actors, excuse me. Yeah, I mean, filming it was really, you know, when I think about it, I think of the, the fact that we had so many kids around, it was really fun. I mean, very quickly, we amassed basically an arsenal of Nerf weaponry. Um, on the set and there were these like impromptu uh, nerf <laughs> like nerf battles that would break out on lunch breaks and uh, I remember towards the I, I I got away unscathed until one of the last days that I it was like the last day that I think a lot of the Eji's like kind of schoolmate characters were filming they were all about to go home and so we had this kind of one last epic nerf fight and the kids just decimated me. I think I got <laughs> hit by like a hundred soft nerf darts um, on set one day. So it was really fun. It, you know, it, it had a kind of edgy kept things just kind of sweet and fun on set. You know, when you have a, a, a kid on set who's working so hard and playing the lead and, and doing it as well as Eji did, you know, it just kind of keeps everybody focused and, I think keeps everybody in a good mood and kind of makes everybody remember why we're doing it and why we're telling the story in the first place. And Jacob was such a great cheerleader for all of us that my, my memories of filming it are just that it was a very easygoing set and everybody had a good time making it. And, 
you know, we didn't run into any kind of crazy complications the way that you can sometimes on a on a film set where you where you've only got, you know, 20, 30 some days to film all of it. It was mostly just a, a good time. What was that like the first time you got to see the film completed? You know, the funny thing is, I have to confess, I still have not seen the film, <gasps> um, which is crazy oh. because I, I, you know, I'm, here I am talking about it. I just got a link where I, I actually can see it, you know, before the premiere, uh, which happens in just a couple of days. So I've only seen bits and pieces. I can't wait to like pop some popcorn and, you know, bust out my Halloween candy and turn off all the lights and, and watch it uh, at home this week, which I'll probably be doing probably even tonight, as a matter of fact. So um, I haven't seen it all cut together, but I'm excited to. And uh, it's it's kind of been great doing the interviews having not seen it because everybody that I talk to, I'm almost like hearing from them being like, well, that you're actually the expert on the movie now because you've seen it and I haven't. <laughs> well, I, I, can I say a couple things? You're really good at it. Oh, uh, thank you. The, the, I, the pacing is not the right word, but it is a pacing slash the way the film kind of builds to the, to the end of the story is just remarkable. And it's done mm. not with jump cuts and stuff like that, which I, I think is just beautiful. Right. That's so great to hear. I mean, that's music to, you know, one's ears, honestly, you know, when you make these, these films, uh, I make movies because I love to watch movies. It really is that simple. And I'm always thinking, how is this going to cut together? How's this going to look? And, and what are, what, what experience are people going to have watching this? So it's always just so great to hear like, you know, from the people that have seen it, that we did pull it off, that we, that we did make something that moved people or engaged people, you know, without manipulating them, as you said, with jump scares and what <laughs> have you, you know, because it is kind of a slow burn of a, of a horror film, you know, it, it pacing, I think you, you, you hit it on the head there. It, it is kind of a pacing issue of how do you kind of keep kind of doling out scary moments to kind of move the story forward and to keep people hooked until you ultimately build to kind of the highest tension point of the film and the, the big scary reveal of our, of our, uh, of our main monster, Larry. Yeah. And Larry is, <laughs> I don't want to say he's so cool, but it, like hearing that he was a puppet, it just, yeah, it, the way he looks on screen, I think I could say this, the way he looks on screens is, um, oh man, I'm trying to be careful here. I, I wouldn't say creepy, but also like there's some things very sad about yeah, him. Yeah. As well. Yeah. No, that's what we were going for. You know, I think that there's this feeling, what I loved about the script was that I think Jacob touched on something that is really a hallmark of, of the great monster movies of, uh, of our time of cinema is that most of the most famous monsters, you know, of like the universal era, when you think of Creature from the Black Lagoon or King Kong or, you know, Frankenstein, they were these misunderstood kind of misfits who were born into their own circumstance and then vilified by society as a whole. And they don't know that they're doing anything bad. They don't know that they're doing, you know, something that's causing somebody harm or that could be construed as evil. And I feel like Jacob brought us a modern day version of one of those universal creatures with Larry that, it, you know, that he is this terrifying being, but that he is unaware of that. He doesn't realize that what he's doing is scary. He's just trying to make a friend. the name of our podcast is called I'm So Obsessed. Mm -hmm. And John, what are you currently obsessed with? I've been a little obsessed with the new Bruce Springsteen record. Uh, he just put out a new album the other day, and I'm a diehard Bruce head. So anytime he puts out a piece of music, I, I can't help but do a deep dive. 
I'm also obsessed with this record by this guy, Jeff Rosenstock. It just put out this kind of power pop punk album recently. I've been obsessed with that. And I'm obsessed with the Criterion Channel. Uh, I have the Criterion Channel app on my Apple TV, and they have this thing for the month of October that's like a 70s horror playlist. It's a bunch of great (laughs) kind of unsung horror movies from the 70s, and I've been slowly making my way through those movies the whole month of October. Wow, that sounds amazing. You got the music, you got the you got the movies. It sounds like you're doing well. You're doing well. Yeah, yeah, try you know, trying to, to to stay creatively engaged and occupied and not just, you know, staring at uh, my phone all day like like Larry. <laughs> <laughs> well, and I didn't want to get to that, but it's weird. There's there's another film that has nothing to do with uh come play called uh, Social Dilemma, which uh, talked yeah. to some of the people who make the apps and social media behind our phones and the addictive quality to that. And I'm kind of like, if you just put that on a kid's phone, Larry, I think you kind of dissuade them from that phone for a while. <laughs> Absolutely. And you know, I think you could probably do a good double feature of Larry of, of come play and the, and the social dilemma. They're, <laughs> they're, both, they're both terrifying films about social media. Yeah, and one is fiction. That's the best. <laughs> yeah. So earlier this year, you played Liam Dempsey Jr. on the third seat of Westworld, yeah. Um, yeah. and you were amazing. But uh, thank you. My pal Caitlin wants me to ask you why wasn't Liam a robot? Oh man, good question. I, I'm not even totally fully sure that he wasn't. <laughs> oh, I didn't say that. <laughs> the funny thing about being on Westworld is that I mean, man, they don't tell you much. You know, they really don't. Um, I, I didn't get full scripts. I only got the scenes I was in. When I signed on to do the part, they wouldn't let me read anything of the character until I said yes to doing the role. Um, So basically, uh, Jonathan Nolan and and Lisa Joy, they pitched the character to me on a Skype session. And they said, here's who he is. And here's kind of what happens to him. But we can't let you read anything. That's just the way we do it. We're super, super secretive. We keep it all very close to the vest. And even as we were filming, I was like, wow, I'm I'm just going to have to find my own kind of way into this character because there's only so much that the bosses can tell me because they've got the whole blueprint of the show kind of in their heads and under wraps. So I, I showed up to work every day kind of thinking, well, I really have no idea where this is, go- is going to go next. <laughs> and uh, maybe I am a robot and I just don't even know it. <laughs> Well, and I think it's interesting because you also have a lot of theater work, which I want to talk about in a second here. And you've been you've originated a couple roles in shows, which I imagine that's going through working with the playwright or the the people writing the book and stuff like that. So you're you're having a lot of maybe not direct input, but input on the character uh, yeah. you're developing, and to go from that to something like Westworld, where you have really no input. <laughs> well, how do you how do you bridge those two as a as an actor? That's a great question and a, and a very uh, astute observation because they are polar opposites. You know, when you're developing a play, I mean, you really are, you're all there kind of rewriting it together because you're in rehearsals all day and you're working on the material and the playwright is watching you rehearse and then going home and rewriting it and then coming back with rewrites that fit whatever happened yesterday in rehearsal. So it's a very collaborative experience. And then you go to, you know, a a movie or a film set like, like Westworld TV show and realize that I don't have to know everything. I don't have to have all the answers. (laughs) And while it can be slightly frustrating because you don't necessarily, you won't have the same exact kind of impulses creatively because you won't 
have all of the information to kind of inform the choices you're making for your character. I, I don't mind it terribly um, because I, I find it kind of weirdly freeing and liberating because it's a little bit closer to the way that we live our lives. You know, we don't ha- have all the answers and we don't make every single choice that we make based on uh, a ton of information. Some of those decisions happen in a vacuum. And so I don't mind being in the vacuum on a film set where I don't have all the answers and all the information because it kind of keeps your impulses and choices as an actor a little simpler. Because you look at the script and go, well, is what, what happened in the scene before this or after this? I don't know. Uh, and not knowing that is going to make me just go, okay, I'm just going to trust the dialogue. I'm going to trust what's on the page and not worry about anything else, which really, in a way, is kind of all acting is in, in a lot of ways. So I, I don't mind it. They're different experiences, but I like them both. I imagine you've seen the third season of Westworld by now. What was your reaction to Liam's journey as a character once you saw it all put together? Uh, it kind of made me just feel a little bit like a, like a fan of, you know, I mean, I was a fan of the show to begin with. I, I thought it was amazing what they pull off and to kind of suddenly see, oh, I, I actually, my character fit into the larger kind of universe uh, of the show in some ways that I didn't totally realize. It was just kind of fun. One of the, one of the last public events I went to was the premiere for season three of Westworld. They did a premiere out in LA. It was uh, early in March. And the day that I flew to Los Angeles for the for the premiere, because I live in New York, was the day that L.A. declared a state of emergency over (laughs) COVID-19. And so it was all starting to get very real uh, the, the week that I did the, the, the premiere for that, for that, for that Westworld episode, but I still got to actually sit in a theater. It was the last time I was in a movie theater was I was at Grauman's Chinese theater in Los Angeles. And I sat down to see the first episode of Westworld and to watch it with an audience and not, not even realizing it would be the last movie theater I would see for quite some time was really fun and exciting because there were some really, you know, some, some diehard Westworld fans there that kind of knew all the backstory and knew where everything was going. It was really fun to watch it with everybody in a big room. Well, and um, so you were in the film um, 10 Clover, Cloverfield Lane, which came out mm-hmm. four years ago. When you look back on that now, what do you think of the film and making it? Oh, man, it was uh, so much fun. It was one of the best times that I think I've ever had on a film set because it was so simple and streamlined. It's uh, three actors. It was me and the great John Goodman and the amazing Mary Elizabeth Winstead. It was just the three of us uh, on a soundstage on this set that was a kind of a fallout shelter bunker that we were in filming. And it, it, it had these long scenes of dialogue that almost felt like a play in a weird way. And it was just so much fun to make. And it wasn't actually um, tied into the Cloverfield universe, the Cloververse, I think, as they call it. And it wasn't until post-production that they got the idea to tie it in to kind of make it make it a Cloverfield film. I remember just thinking, wow, if you told me when we were on set that I'd be at this big premiere and it would be called 10 Cloverfield Lane, I would have had no idea. You know, I thought it was going to maybe be, come out in a couple of theaters, be kind of an independent release end up on VOD, but it turned out to be a really big theatrical release and a ton of people saw it. And I think that's the genius of J.J. Abrams was that I think he saw the movie and said, this is really good. And so he really gifted us that the title and the use of the Cloverfield universe. You know, it was his idea to do that. And um, we ended up being the number two movie at the box office on opening weekend. And I, there's just no way that that would have happened if if we had a different title. So he really helped get that movie on the map in a way that we might not have been otherwise. Well, another thing that um, you have such a diverse background here, but you're also a musician and songwriter and have been in a number of bands. What role does music play in your life now? 
now that you're more act, doing more acting jobs? Yeah, I, I'm always writing, uh, always writing music, and especially now in the in the in under lockdown and in the the COVID era, I've been doing some live stream shows. And I'm always writing songs. I, I always have a notebook open. I'm always jotting down song titles and song lyrics. And, you know, I play guitar every day and, and try to kind of keep up on that stuff. And, um, and, and, I'm, and I'm just a huge fan. I mean, I'm always, always listening to music, uh, always looking for my next obsession, if you will, several of which I've <laughs> told you about already that I've found. But my, my parents play music. It's, it's their passion and their love. It's kind of their biggest hobby. And, they kind of gave that to me. I, I definitely inherited that from them. So it's a, it's just a huge part of my daily life. Well, to wrap up here, I usually play a thing called Pick One, where I give you a couple choices and you pick one. It doesn't mean nice. it's the best one, but uh, would you play Pick One with me, John? I'd love to. Yeah. All right. The first one is film, theater, TV, or music. Ooh, music is just what came to me first. Yeah. Uh, okay, we'll go with that. Um, next one is the West Wing or the Newsroom. Oh man, this is going to seem sacrilegious because I'm kind of dissing all my friends and the show that was, you know, a big part of my career. But I, <laughs> I, would, I say- would have to say West Wing. <laughs> How come? How come? Oh, I just think it's you know I, I just think it's so good. I think it's it's obviously a seminal uh, moment in in drama broadcast uh, network history. It was such a zeitgeisty moment when that show came out. There's just such a tremendous cast of actors that they had on it. I just think that it, I think of it as kind of being one of the best Sorkin realizations. You know, the the mixture of his dialogue with that cast with the subject matter. It just came together in kind of a way that I feel like it's like almost the perfect version uh, of a Sorkin script kind of coming to life. I, I just think it's such a great show. All right. I'm going to apologize for this next one because there's just not a good answer, but uh, Spring Awakening or American Idiot? Oh, wow. Yeah, this is... I'm going to go, I mean, my instinct here is going to American Idiot. They, they, they both were huge moments in my life. They're two Broadway musicals that I've never worked harder in my life than, than I did on those shows. Each show I did for about three years from kind of, uh, you know, concept to development to opening on Broadway. And then I did the show for about a year. Each show I performed for about a year. And as much as I love them both and Spring Awakening completely changed my life. Um, it took me to so many places that I never thought that I would ever go but um, there's something about American Idiot. It was it was my, I was in my late twenties. I was going through a kind of emotional up and down time, and that show was just so cathartic and so amazing. And I made so many friends that are still a huge part of my life. Uh, I met my girlfriend doing that show, uh, who I'm still with. We we didn't get together until long after the show was closed, but we still met <laughs> doing that. So there are just so many gifts that that show has given me. Um, that uh, that that make me feel like I, I have to pick it. Okay, here's the last one. I mean, this sounds simple, but I think you'll have a good answer for this: guitar or harmonica. Ooh, okay, yeah. Um, uh, well, I mean, I love them both, and I love them even I love them even more when they're together. But uh, just alone, I go with guitar, just because it's such a versatile instrument. And I love what I love about the guitar is that you don't need anything else. I would go with harmonica, except it's hard to play harmonica and sing at the same time, but you can sing while playing the guitar at the same time, so gotta go with guitar. (laughs) 
I want to thank John for chatting with me, and I want to thank you for listening. Come Play is now out in theaters, and if you enjoyed this interview, take a moment and subscribe to I'm So Obsessed on your favorite podcast app. And if you really like this episode, please rate it. Until next time, take care.